the summer of 1958. In Iraq, the government was overthrown in a bloody coup. The king and crown prince murdered and the prime minister kicked to death by a Baghdad mob. 1,700 U.S. Marines and 2,000 British paratroopers were quickly sent to Iraq's aid. In Stockholm, Brazil, with a 17-year-old player named Pelé, won the World Cup. In Cuba, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara launched their first offensive against the Batista regime. In America, Elvis Presley was drafted. In Haiti, Papa Doc crushed yet another army revolt. In Ireland, 99 people died when a Dutch airliner crashed into the sea. The actors Ronald Coleman and Robert Donat died, and athlete Daley Thompson and pop star Michael Jackson were born. In England, the Everly Brothers with All I Have to Do is Dream were top of the charts. The hovercraft was invented by a Suffolk boat builder. Peter Thompson won his fourth British Open. Prince Charles was created Prince of Wales. The bank rate was cut from 6 to 5% and the Midland Bank was the first bank to offer personal loans. Manchester United, only three months after the Munich air disaster, were in the FA Cup final. In London, the yellow no-waiting signs came into force for the first time and race riots took place in Notting Hill. And that was the summer I worked in London, rented a small pied-à-terre at 6 Swanwalk, Chelsea, and had as my near neighbour at number 8 the elderly distingue gentleman who always wore yellow gloves. Any decent writer who thinks of himself occasionally as an artist would far rather be forgotten so that somebody better might be remembered. And any man who can write a page of living prose adds something to our life. And the man who can, as I can, is surely the last to resent someone who can do it even better. An artist cannot deny art, nor would he want to. If you believe in an ideal, you don't own it. It owns you. I must admit that my initial perception of my near neighbour was not that he was a writer. Far from it. From the start, old Yellow Love struck me as being a man who might have had a colourful, if not downright shady, past. He was of medium height, bordering on the frail. His clothes were tasteful and expensive, his one foible in this respect being the Yellow Love's worn with all of his many outfits. Silver hair, a pipe, and horn-rimmed glasses added that final distingue touch. Perhaps he was a retired gangland boss, a big-time gambler, come in the evening of his life to the relative peace and anonymity of Chelsea. And this perception was endorsed for me by the ever-present deferential minder and the chauffeur-driven car. I like to take a hired car a couple of times a week and be driven to Boodle's, the Athenaeum, or the Garrick for lunch. Or sometimes the less fashionable restaurants around Kensington or Chelsea. I remember La Speranza with particular affection. And after lunch, I would have the driver take me to Harrods for clothes and gifts, or to Berry Brothers and Rudd for whiskey and good wines. 
One morning, as I waited in the rain at the bus stop, just round the corner from Swan Walk, the chauffeur-driven car stopped and the gentleman with the yellow gloves offered me a lift. He introduced himself as Raymond Chandler. I introduced myself and we talked as the car edged along in the traffic. He interrupted me before we had gone very far. Excuse me, excuse me. Let me guess what part of Ireland you come from. I've always had a good ear for speech and accents. Somewhere in the south-east corner, I would say. Let me see, let me see. Wexford? Or, or Waterford? On hearing that I came from Waterford, Chandler was visibly moved, and he became quite emotional as he told me. My mother came from Waterford, a Thornton, Florence Thornton. Family had a big legal practice in the city. <laughs> I, Thornton and Son, solicitors and notaries public, Cathedral Square, Waterford. Her brother, Uncle Ernest, was a bit of an old tyrant, ran the practice and the family with an iron hand and an iron glove. Upper-class Protestants, what god-awful snobs. Still, when I was growing up, after Father had abandoned us when I was only seven, I had good times in Waterford during the summer vacations. Must tell you about it sometime. Say, why don't you come to my next party? And I did go to his next party a few nights later. He was overjoyed at having a Waterfordian for a near neighbour. For the remainder of that summer, Ray Chandler and I saw a lot of each other. He was then seventy, a widower, and in failing health. The man I had mistaken for a minder was a male nurse. But, though Chandler was ill and fading fast during that Chelsea summer, he still retained the laconic wit he had given to his greatest creation, Private Eye Philip Marlowe. Even in talking about his own birth, this came through. My father was an American from Chicago, married Florence Thornton in 1887, and they settled there. I was actually conceived in Laramie, Wyoming, and if they'd asked me, I should prefer to have been born there. I always liked high altitudes, and quite frankly, Chicago is not a place where any self-respecting Anglophile would choose to be born. His father, Morris Chandler, was away a lot on business, and from the start the marriage was not a happy one. Young Raymond and his mother often went to stay with friends or relations in other parts of America. They stayed with the Fitz, relations from Waterford, now settled in Plattsmouth. Even at that early age, the boy was hyper-conscious of detail, the kind of detail that made the Marlowe novels so great. Of Plattsmouth, he remembered... The oak trees and the high wooden sidewalks beside the dirt roads, and the heat and the fireflies and the walking sticks and a lot of strange insects, and the gathering of wild grapes in the fall to make wine, and dead cattle in the fields, and once in a while a dead man floating down the muddy river, and the dandy little three-hole privy behind the house. I remember also the rocking chairs on the edge of the sidewalk in a solid row outside the hotel, and the tobacco spit all over the place. Over fifty years later, when he wrote The Little Sister, the man's eye for detail was as sharp as had been the boy's all those years ago in Plattsmouth. Philip Marlowe sits in his shabby office, waiting for the clients who are slow to come.
Come on in. There's nobody in here but me and a big blue-bottle fly. It was one of those clear, bright summer mornings we get in the early spring in California. Before the high fog sets in, the rains are over. The hills are still green, and in the valley across the Hollywood Hills, you can see the snow on the high mountains. The fur stores are advertising their annual sales. The call houses that specialize in 16-year-old virgins are doing a land office business. And in Beverly Hills, the jacaranda trees are beginning to bloom. I've been stalking the bluebottle fly for five minutes, waiting for him to sit down. He didn't want to sit down. He just wanted to do wingovers and sing the prologue to Pagliacci. I had the fly swatter poised in midair, and I was all set. There was a patch of bright sunlight on the corner of the desk, and I knew that sooner or later, that was where he was going to light. But when he did, I didn't even see him at first. The buzzing stopped, and there he was. And then the phone rang. This is late, great Chandler. But between the boy's observations of small-town America and the man's observations of California, much muddy water and many dead bodies floated down the Plattsmouth River. An only child, with no father after the age of seven, he was very close to his mother, and her family helped raise him. I came with my mother to live in London just after my seventh birthday. We lived in Upper Norwood in the southern suburbs, near the site of Crystal Palace with my grandmother and two aunts. Uncle Ernest had bought the house there to get them out of his way in Waterford. My uncle was a man of rather evil temper. I remember from those summers when the whole London household went to Waterford the terrible scenes in the dining room when a particular dish didn't suit Uncle Ernest. He would order it removed and sit in stony silence for three-quarters of an hour while the frantic housekeeper browbeat the servants downstairs and another meal was prepared for the master. This was usually much worse than the one he had just refused. But I can still feel the silence. Now, from his American father and his rather nomadic childhood, Chandler had developed a great sense of freedom which enabled him to survive, without being spoiled, the pampering he received from the three women in that London household. And on his summer vacations in Waterford, this same sense of freedom made him rather intolerant of the extreme conservatism of his Irish relatives. Yet, I discovered, he himself had retained certain odd elements of that conservatism. Once, after a party, he asked me to remain on after the other guests had gone. He seemed very agitated. Just this morning, some hack in one of the London papers referred to me as Irish-American. And I can't stand that phrase. Can't stand it. You see, to me, that implies being Catholic and working class. His boyhood experiences in the Thornton House in Waterford had truly left an indelible impression on him and had given him a strangely ambivalent attitude to things Irish and Catholic. The professional classes in Southern Ireland are, and always have been, largely non-Catholic. Those few Irish patriots who have had brains as well as spite have also been non-Catholic. 
I should not like to say that in Ireland Catholicism reached its all-time low of ignorance, dirt, and general degradation of the priesthood. But in my boyhood, it was bad enough. With Chandler, the issue was never a religious one. What was that issue, for him, was class and education. As a boy, I was an acolyte, and as a young man, I was very high church and very devout. But I was cursed with an analytical mind. Like most of the so-called professional classes, the Thornton family, for all its domestic rows and internal dissensions, proved to be fiercely snob when finding a school for young Raymond. He was sent to Dulwich College, which by the end of the last century had begun to emerge as one of the better public schools in England. Not quite, perhaps, in the same class as Eton, Winchester or Harrow, but academically very sound, winning more than its share of scholarships to Oxford and Cambridge. Chandler spent five years at Dulwich from 1900 to 1905 and had great respect for the training he received there, especially in the classics. Our headmaster, A.H. Jilks, was a marvellously well-rounded man. He was unusual in that he had a great passion for the classics and English literature and was himself a published novelist. He believed that literature was a source of moral instruction. For instance, he regularly told us boys, Cicero had a large plant of conceit growing in his heart, and he watered it every day. He taught a code where the old Greek and Roman virtues of public service, honor, and self-sacrifice were paramount. And this code, known to generations of middle- and upper-class boys who attended public schools in England, certainly affected Chandler. It helped mould his own character, and much later transplanted to America, it helps to explain the sometimes old-fashioned and idiosyncratic behaviour of Chandler's fictional hero, Philip Marlowe. I'm strictly the background type, and my character is an unbecoming mixture of outer diffidence and inward arrogance. Yes, I suppose there's a lot of me in Philip Marlowe, a lot of my hidebound quality, my conservatism. But there's also a lot of the kind of moral code I've tried to live by in Marlowe. As in The Big Sleep, when the socialite Vivian Sternwood mistakes Marlowe's motives and presumes he's just another smart guy trying to extract money. He reacts with mocking sarcasm. Uh-uh. I'm a very smart guy. I haven't a feeling or a scruple in the world. All I have the itch for is money. I'm so money greedy that for 25 bucks a day and expenses, mostly gasoline and whiskey, I do my thinking myself, what there is of it. I risk my whole future, the hatred of the cops and of Eddie Mars and his pals. I dodge bullets and eat saps and say, thank you very much. If you've any more trouble, I hope you'll think of me. I'll just leave one of my cards in case anything comes up. I do all this for 25 bucks a day and maybe... Just a little to protect what little pride a broken and sick old man has left in his blood, in the thought that his blood is not poison, and that although his two little girls are a trifle wild, as many nice little rich girls are these days, they are not perverts or killers. And that makes me a son of a bitch in your eyes? All right. I don't care anything about that. I've been called at by people of all sizes and shapes, including your little sister. 
She'd call me worse than that by not getting into bed with her. I got $500 from your father, which I didn't ask for, but he can afford to give it to me. I can get another 1000 for finding your husband, Mr. Rusty Regan, if I could find him. Now you offer me fifteen grand. That makes me a big shot. With fifteen grand, I could own a home and a new car and four suits of clothes. I might even take a vacation without worrying about losing a case. It's fine. But what are you offering it to me for? Can I go on being a son of a bitch? Or do I have to become a gentleman like that lush that passed out in his car the other night? Chandler showed no signs of literary ability while still at Dulwich. The training he received there greatly affected his outlook on literature and on life in general. The public school code, though now widely derided, was really a stabilising factor in Chandler's life, particularly as he spent most of it in the formless world of California, where the only code was, anything goes. But Dulwich certainly made me a little snob, especially as far as the Irish were concerned. I remember during a summer vacation in Waterford being invited to play tennis at the house of a very rich local family. They were, I thought, rather gaudy people, except for the father. They were nearly all young people, boys and girls, expensively dressed, and some rather drunk. Though I was not expensively dressed, I felt in no way inferior. As I realized at once that these people were not all up to the standard even of Dulwich, and heaven knows what Eton and Rugby would have thought about them. The boys and girls had gone to private schools, but not the right kind. Their family dog chewed my straw hat, and with my school ribbon in it, and the head of the family, a very nice little man in some kind of trade in the city, insisted on paying for the hat. I refused, of course, for taking money from a social inferior seemed unthinkable. Yet they were kind people, full of fun and very tolerant. And as I look back on it now, probably much more worth knowing than my stupid and arrogant grandmother. Like all snobbery, Chandler's youthful attitude tells us a lot about his insecurity about himself and his future. He had performed well enough to go to one of the universities and wanted to study law, but Uncle Ernest wouldn't pay the fees involved. It was to be a civil service career for Ray. While waiting to sit the exam, he was sent to Germany and France to perfect his languages. After Europe, it was back to a job in the Admiralty. He went along with Uncle Ernest's plan because he thought he might turn the job into something better. I wanted to be a writer, but I knew my Irish uncle would not stand for this, so I thought perhaps the easy hours in the civil service might let me do that on the side. The job was dull, the main passion being a bitter non-acceptance of the use of carbon paper. But his real problem was social. Europe had not rid him of all of his snobbery. I could have had a lifelong and perfectly safe job, with six weeks vacation and ridiculously easy hours, but I thoroughly detested the civil service. I had too much Irish blood in my veins to stand being pushed about by suburban nobodies. The idea of being expected to tip my hat to the head of the department struck me as verging on the obscene. 
Much to the disgust of his family, particularly his uncle Ernest, Chandler resigned from the civil service after only six months. The stiff collar, the bowler hat, the morning and evening train rides into and out of Charing Cross were too constricting for a young man of his temperament. For the next four years he made a very precarious living writing poetry and essays and book reviews for magazines, Chambers Journal, Westminster Gazette, The Academy and The Saturday Review. I began my literary career as a poet. My first poem was composed at the age of 19 on a Sunday in the bathroom. It was published in Chambers' journal, and I am fortunate in not still possessing a copy. We are less fortunate, for it was a bad poem, cloying and saccharine, full of sadly noble sentiments. It did, however, reveal a desire to be involved in something more exciting than shifting naval stores or taking the 515 to Streatham Hill Station every day. When the evening sun is slanting, when the crickets raise their chanting, and the dewdrops lie a-twinkling on the grass, as I climb the pathway slowly, with a mean half-proud, half-lowly, o'er the ground your feet have trod, I gently pass. When the last great trump has sounded, when life's bark the point has rounded, when the wheel of human progress is at rest. My beloved, may I meet you with a lover's kiss to greet you, where you wait me in the gardens of the blessed. In the essays for the Academy, Chandler was preoccupied with literature and the life of the writer. Looking at old cuttings of these during the summer in Chelsea, across a distance of over fifty years, he said, sadly, They surprise me. They're so nasty in tongue. And the style. The style is intolerably precious. Terrible. Terrible. What Chandler was really trying to do at that time was to work out his own position as a writer, and his main concern was that... The writer must have something to say, a vision worth expressing. The only writers who matter are idealists rather than realists. Of all forms of art, realism is the easiest to practice, because of all forms of mind, the dull mind is commonest. Only the idealists can exalt the sordid to a vision of magic and create pure beauty out of plaster and vile dust. He perceived the idealistic view as dealing with human possibilities, not merely recording facts as in a sociological survey. In one of his essays from those early London years, he describes old houses semi-derelict in the suburbs during an economic depression. The decaying mansions, broken windows, gates hanging from single, rusting hinges, the tangle of overgrown rose trees. The effect, he says, is like that of a fine etching, colourless but full of suggestion, with a faint flavour of the sordid, but it is the romance of sordidness. Here is the genesis of Chandler's Los Angeles, of the whole canon of his work. Here in the single phrase, the romance of sordidness, he has said it all. For that is what the Marlowe books are, installments in an ongoing saga of sordidness. But it is a poetic sordidness, as poetic as the titles he gave the books. The Big Sleep, The High Window, Farewell, My Lovely. The Lady in the Lake, The Little Sister, and The Long Goodbye. 
He never fights shy of recording unpleasant phenomena, but he records them in such a way that the reader can feel them emotionally, in human terms, in terms of joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain. They are all illumined by sympathy, by love and by humour. As in this scene from The Little Sister, Marlowe, beat up, sore and sorry, has just been interrogated for hours by the police. He is about to go on condition he doesn't leave town until after the DA has decided what to do. I just stood there and looked at them. The ice pick wound between my shoulders had a dry sting, and the area around the place was stiff. The side of my face and mouth smarted where McGlashan had sideswiped me with his well-used pigskin glove. I was in the deep water. It was dark and unclear, and the taste of salt was in my mouth. They just sat there and looked back at me. The Orange Queen was clacking a typewriter. Cop talked was no more threat to her than legs to a dance director. They had the calm, weathered faces of men in hard condition. They had the eyes they always had, cloudy and gray like freezing water. The firm, set mouth, the hard little wrinkles at the corners of the eyes, the hard, hollow, meaningless stare, not quite cruel and a thousand miles from kind. The dull, ready-made clothes, worn without style, with a sort of contempt. The look of men who were poor and yet proud of their power, watching always for ways to make it felt. To shove it into you and grin and watch you squirm, ruthless without malice, cruel and yet not always unkind. What would you expect them to be? Civilization had no meaning for them. All they saw of it was the failures, the dirt, the dregs, the aberrations, and the disgust. What are you standing there for? Bafus asked sharply. You want us to give you a great big spitty kiss? No snappy comebacks, eh? Too bad. His voice fell away into a dull drone. He frowned and reached the pencil off the desk. With a quick motion of his fingers, he snapped it in half and held the two halves out in his palm. We're giving you that much break, he said thinly, his smile all gone. I put my hand up and rubbed my lip. My mouth had too many teeth in it. And sordidness of another kind in this scene from The Big Sleep. Marlowe finds the heiress, Carmen Sternwood, doped and naked beside the body of her dead lover. The room contained an odd assortment of odors, the pungent aftermath of cordite and the sickish aroma of ether. She was sitting very straight with her hands on the arms of the chair, her knees close together, her body stiffly erect in the pose of an Egyptian goddess, her chin level, her small, bright teeth shining between her parted lips. Her eyes were wide open. The dark slate color of the iris had devoured the pupil. They were mad eyes. Out of her mouth came a tiny, chuckling noise which didn't change her expression or even move her lips. She was wearing a pair of long jade earrings. They were nice earrings and it probably cost a couple of hundred dollars. She wasn't wearing anything else. She had a beautiful body. I looked over her without either embarrassment or ruttishness. As a naked girl, she was not there in that room at all. She was just a dope. To me, she was always just a dope. Chandler was 23 when he returned to America. The one-way ticket was paid for by Uncle Ernest, 
probably to get his troublesome nephew out of the way. For the next twenty years, he was to work at a variety of jobs before making a breakthrough as a writer. In 1918, he fought in France, but was always strangely reticent about his experiences. It was a nightmare I would prefer to forget. You see, courage is such a strange thing. You can never be sure of it. It's like quicksilver. Here and then not here. But I can tell you, once you have had to lead a platoon into direct machine gun fire, nothing is ever the same again. After the war, he returned to America and fell in love with a woman who was to be his wife for over 30 years, Sissy Pascal. She was 17 years older than Chandler and divorced her husband to marry him. They were married four years after his return. In that time, he had held a variety of jobs, travelling and living, always for short periods, in different parts of America. In San Francisco, he worked in the Bank of British North America, only for a short while, for he could not find what he was looking for, the same restlessness that had driven him from his job in the British Civil Service was still at work in him. I think it was there for the first time. I began to dislike the kind of English who don't live in England, don't want to live in England, but bloody well want to wave their Chinese affectations of manner and accent in front of your nose, as if it were some kind of rare incense, instead of a distillation of cheap suburban snobbery, which is just as ludicrous in England as it is here. By the time he married Sissy, he had been working for some time in the oil business, and by good fortune and his effectiveness as an administrator, had progressed to the top. I was an executive in the oil business once, a director of eight companies and president of three, although actually I was just a high-priced employee. They were small companies, but very rich. I had the best office staff in Los Angeles, and I paid them higher salaries than they could get anywhere else, and they knew it. My office door was always open, and everybody called me by my Christian name, and there was never any dissension, because I made it my business to see that there was no cause for it. I hated firing anyone because one never knew what hardship it might bring for the individual. Business was very tough, and I hated it. But whatever you set out to do, you have to do as well as you know how. During those early years of marriage, the difference in age between Ray and Sissy did not show. But, slowly, imperceptibly at first, as she approached sixty, with her husband not yet forty, the discrepancy became obvious. She tried to disguise it by dyeing her hair blonde and dressing young. Sometimes she overdid it, and this embarrassed Chandler. He began to drink heavily, have affairs with girls in the office, and be careless about his work. After repeated warnings, the company sacked him. He was 44. Of course, it was a bloody disaster. I had no means of livelihood. My marriage was almost on the rocks and would have failed completely but for Sissy's incredible loyalty. It destroyed my sense of identity. Here I was, uh, 20 years after my return to America, right back where I started from, except now I had a bad reputation. Fewer options open to me, and less energy than before. 
I had wasted ten years as a factotum of a corrupt oil millionaire. And for the remainder of my life, I would equate crooks with oil tycoons. And I learned once and for always never to take anything for granted. Chandler had a great ability to benefit from his mistakes and misfortunes. And, in the case of his sacking from the oil job, both the experience and the failure were turned to benefit. The experience gave him insight into the Southern California he was to write about, and the failure told him more about himself. He gave up drink and began writing again. Where Saki and Henry James had been the literary influences on him during his period in London, there was now a new influence at work. He had discovered Hemingway. In a short parody called The Sun Also Sneezes, he did a good imitation of the master's style. Hank went into the bathroom to brush his teeth. The hell with it, he said. She shouldn't have done it. It was a good bathroom. It was small and neat, and enamel was peeling off the walls. But the hell with that, as Napoleon said when they told him Josephine was waiting without. The bathroom had a wide window through which Hank looked at the pines and the larches. They dripped with a faint rain. They looked smooth and comfortable. The hell with it, Hank said. She shouldn't have done it. Hank unscrewed the top of the toothpaste tube, thinking of the day when he had unscrewed the lid off the coffee jar down on the Pakayuk River when he was trout fishing. There had been larches there, too. It was a damn good river, and there had been damn good trout. They liked being hooked. Everything had been good except the coffee, which had been lousy. He had made it in Watson's way, boiling it for two hours and a half in his knapsack. It had tasted like the socks of the forgotten man. While this has many of the elements of Hemingway's style, it has a dimension Hemingway largely lacked. It has humor, and humor was to be a kind of common denominator in all of Chandler's writing. In his first novel, The Big Sleep, published to great acclaim in 1939, Chandler pulled all the dangling threads of his nomadic, unsettled life together, and his talent flowered at last. There are passages that give a whiff of Hemingway, but also show that extra dimension. I got down to Montemar Vista as the light began to fade. But there was still a fine sparkle on the water, and the surf was breaking far out in the long, smooth curves. A group of pelicans was flying bomber formation just under the creaming lip of the waves. A lonely yacht was tacking in toward the yacht harbor at Bay City. Montemar Vista was a few dozen houses of various sizes and shapes, hanging by their teeth and eyebrows to a spur of mountain, and looking as if a good sneeze would drop them down among the box lunches on the beach. The iron-legged, tile-topped tables under the striped awning were empty, save for a single dark woman in slacks. A fox terrier was using one of the iron chairs for a lamppost. During the next 15 years, he wrote the great Marlowe novels and dozens of short stories, also featuring the laconic private eye. 
He also had a spell in Hollywood as a scriptwriter, working on the screenplays for some of his own books and also writing the screenplays for Double Indemnity and The Blue Dahlia, both nominated for Oscars. He didn't like Hollywood and was too idealistic and too much of a loner to fit into the big studio setup. He went there originally because it was a new, exciting medium, a challenge, and a challenge to his creative powers Chandler could never resist. Some accused him of going just for the money. Don't think I went for the money, because I didn't. There are always ways to make money if you really need it. I rather envy people who think art and literature worth any sacrifice, but I don't seem to feel that way. My salute to posterity is a thumb to the end of the nose and the fingers outspread. Publishers and movie producers read too many critics. And just who are the critics, after all? People of small accomplishment, mostly, whose dignity in life depends on the perpetuating of a set of artificial values conceived by other critics, also of small accomplishment. My standards are too high for me to admire the successful hacks very much, and too unorthodox to care what the pundits say. Well, all this matters nothing, except that a writer, to be happy, should be a good second-rater, not a starved genius like... La Forgue. Not a sad, lonely man like Heine. Nor a lunatic like Dostoevsky. He should definitely not be a mystery writer with a touch of magic and a bad feeling about plots. All his life, Chandler had strong feelings about being labelled just a mystery writer. He tried to bring to the telling of a story all the elements of style and magic at his disposal. When J.B. Priestley, an admirer, talked to him about the serious novel versus detective fiction, Chandler was outraged. Priestley says he likes my books, but wishes I would write something without murders in it. Now, isn't that a typical attitude? Why can't a murder story be also a serious novel? You slam murder mysteries a la Edmund Wilson, because they are usually written, you say, by people who can't write well. And the moment you find someone who, you are willing to admit, can write well, you tell him he should not be writing murder mysteries. Meantime, have you read any good trash lately? When Sissy died in December 1954, Ray was shattered. She had been immensely loyal through all his drinking and casual affairs. He appreciated this and suffered great agonies of remorse and guilt. A few weeks later, on the afternoon of February 22nd, this caused such depression that after a drinking bout at home in La Holla, he attempted suicide. But he had never handled the gun before and only succeeded in sending the bullet through the bathroom ceiling. After that, it was downhill all the way. When I met him in Chelsea, he was nearing the end. But to the last, he tried to recapture the gaiety of times past and many of his old friends rallied round. His parties were always lively affairs with lots of these old friends ensuring that the lonely old man was not left cheerless. I remember at one party a very affected middle-aged writer going on about what a dreadful bore he found the actual business of writing to be. Ray kept his cool until the man had left and then exploded. My God! A writer who hates the actual writing 
who gets no joy out of the creation of magic by words, to me is simply not a writer at all. The actual writing is what you live for. The rest is something you have to get through in order to arrive at that point. How can you hate the actual writing? What is there to hate about it? You might as well say that a man likes to chop wood or clean house and hates the sunshine or the night breeze or the nodding of flowers or the dew on the grass or the song of birds. How can you hate the magic which makes a paragraph or a sentence or a line of dialogue or a description something in the nature of a new creation? During that Chelsea summer, Ray Chandler and I sometimes went across the road to the botanical gardens. He liked to sit in the sun and watch the flowers and plants. To the end, he retained his great sense of humour and his penchant, like Marlowe, for the quick one-liner. He talked one day of a Daily Express poll to find out who the most popular authors, actors, movie stars were, according to highbrow, middlebrow and lowbrow tastes. And Marilyn Monroe and I were the only ones who made all three brows. He would, on these occasions, remember with great glee some of Marlowe's wisecracks. I woke up with a motorman's glove in my mouth. Dead men are heavier than broken hearts. A voice that sounded like Orson Welles with his mouth full of crackers. The general spoke again slowly, using his strength the way an out-of-work showgirl uses her last good pair of stockings. It is astonishing the degree to which Marlowe had become a real person to Chandler. Marlowe was not really an extension of Chandler, though they had many common characteristics. We were both lonely men, isolated in the non-society of California. And they had very individualistic moral stances that were at odds with the standards of that society. Chandler would often say, when the character of Marlowe was being negotiated for radio or television adaptation, I am Marlowe. Though he deprecated his own importance as a writer, Chandler had a very clear idea of what he had achieved, how vital and original it was. Once I asked him if he ever read his own books. I do. And at the risk of being called an egotistical twerp, I find them damned hard to put down, even me that knows all about it. There must be some magic in writing, after all, but I can take no credit for it. It just happens, like red hair. Toward the end of that memorable summer, on the day before I left London for an extended stay in Rome, Ray invited me to lunch with him at the Café Royale. It was one of his better days, and he joked and wisecracked and was in relatively high spirits. When he had tasted his chicken Kiev, he slowly pushed his plate aside and called the waiter and politely but peremptorily said, Take it away, please, Bernard. Must have been dead a few days before they killed it. A quip worthy of Philip Marlowe. At the end of that year, when I returned to London, Ray Chandler had left for America. I never saw him again. He died there at La Holla the following spring, alone and far from all his solicitous Chelsea friends. Dream, 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 dream,
Charms whenever I want.